0: Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. should perish. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, please help us to understand your Word. Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts, that we would have a greater affection not only for you and for your Word and for Christ, but for each other as we study this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. For a while now, we've been studying this section of Matthew's Gospel that has been called the Discourse on the Church. Sometimes you'll see it called the Discourse on Childlikeness. Sometimes it's called the Discourse on Community Life. In this section, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is teaching about the relational and moral ethics of the church. Again, like I said last week, He comes and and actually leads into the specific um, direction of the local church in verse uh, 17 um, of this chapter, but He's still talking about the community of faith here in these earlier sections. Now remember that the disciples had sparked this great teaching on the community of faith, and the intolerance of sin, by asking, as we just read, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And you'll remember that that question was sparked by their own argument that they were having about who was the greatest. Now that argument is, is described in Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 9. Matthew omits that. And so our Lord, in verses 2 through 4, pointed them first to Humility. He drastically reverses all that they knew or thought about leadership and prominence by drawing their attention to a child. He he has this object lesson. He draws a child into their midst, and rather than affirming a, a low view of the humble, childlike believer, he exalts these, as he calls them, these little ones, referring to the solidarity between saint and Savior by saying... Whoever receives one such child who believes in me, and my name, receives me. But he also states in verses 5 and 6 that it would be better to die than to cause one of them to sin. Again, because an infraction against one is an infraction against another. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 8. When you sin against another believer, causing them to sin, a sin against their conscience, you sin against Christ. In verse 7, he addresses the world and the people of the world and and how they would provide opportunities to sin for God's people and then in verses 8 and 9 last week we saw that not only must we watch out for the world and the people of the world but we every Christian must also be aware of himself and the multitude of temptations to sin that we provide for ourselves in the things that we do in the directing of our lives and in the experiences with which we, uh, or in which we take part. We have to guard not only from the outside, but the inside. So we turn now to verses 10 through 14. And Jesus begins here to teach his disciples about the great value of every child of God. First, by describing the extent to which the Father will go to protect His children, and second, by describing the extent to which the Father will go to preserve His children. In other words, after all of this talk of the little ones, the humble Christian, and how sin is intolerable, we must not tempt each other to sin, we must not tempt ourselves to sin, one might ask, why is it that sin is so intolerable within the the people of God, within the community of faith, within the church. And here, Jesus begins to answer. One of the answers to that question is, because each and every child of God is very valuable. The, The stumbling of a child of God means a lot to God. And so, sin cannot be tolerated. And so today, we're going to look only at verse 10 and the protection of God's children under two different headings. We've got two sentences, two headings. The first heading is, we'll see a repudiation of arrogance. And then the second heading, we'll see a rationale for the prohibition. A rationale for the prohibition. Again, two sentences, two headings. So first, a repudiation of arrogance. We'll call this verse 10a, a repudiation of arrogance. The Lord begins this repudiation by addressing His disciples with an exhortation to personal introspection and self-watch. Notice He says, See that you. In other words, look at yourselves and take special precaution of your actions. So He's turned, as it were, back to the disciples to address the initial problem. You see, they were arguing amongst themselves about who was the greatest. There was sinful arrogance within the twelve. These men were arguing because some of them thought enough of themselves to argue for their status over and above the status of their brothers. They thought so low of their brothers that they were scoffing at at the idea that one of them might be the greatest. You see, there's, there's sinful arrogance. And so our Lord says... See that you, each and every one of you, look at yourself, look at your heart, pay attention to your own life, look at your intentions, your motivations, stop looking at others, stop measuring others, stop measuring yourself against others. Take precaution for your own self. Now having called His disciples' attention to themselves... He then gives them an imperative command of prohibition. In other words, He tells them what not to do. He says, see that you do not despise. Now, the word despise here is made up of two different words. If we wanted to make a literal translation in the English language, we would say, do not downthink. Of course, in modern English, we would say, do not Think down upon. That's what he's saying. Do not despise. Do not think down upon. This despising, this thinking down upon someone, obviously, is a disposition of the mind. Well, let's think about this. Let's think about what goes into thinking down upon someone else. It assumes that you've thought about yourself. It assumes that you've thought about another person or group of people. And in thinking, you have concluded in your mind that you are of a higher level, a higher pedigree, a higher status, and they are of a lower level, a lower pedigree, a lower status, and therefore, for whatever reason, you think more highly of yourself than you think of them. You consider yourself superior in some way, and you consider them inferior in some way. That's what it means to despise. Now, usually, your mind being inclined to think this way, you think about it, you begin to believe it in your heart and feel it in your heart. You feel that reality is really as you think it is in your mind and therefore you really begin to believe and feel, in addition to thinking, that you are superior to somebody else. Again, for whatever reason, it's a disposition of the mind. Now this is our tendency. This is what we do. Those who, especially those who are inclined to pride or inclined to arrogance, those who may be stronger in the faith, more learned in the faith, maybe more inclined to um, pursuing knowledge through reading or studying, digging in, in, in depth in theological matters. We tend to have a prideful, and I say we because I, I'm, I'm like this. This is my tendency. We tend to think down upon people. We are inclined to pride and arrogance. And because of that, we begin to or are tempted to take advantage of a lowly attitude. We might take advantage of humility or the weakness of another Christian. These actions make us feel wise in our own eyes. In other words, we capitalize on the shortcomings of others to make ourselves feel uh, better, to to exalt ourselves. In other words, we tend to despise. Again, I'm in that category. Very often, anyone within the Reformed camp is considered in this category. The, 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 The... The book learning and the scholasticism and the the in-depth detail in biblical theology and doctrine is assumed to be arrogant or prideful, and very often it is arrogant and prideful. We take these things and we look down on others who are not as smart as us, don't believe like us, don't think like us. We tend to despise. We take advantage of people who are like this, someone who's humble, who's, who's not going to assert themselves. Well, we tend to take advantage of that, to, to manipulate them to do as we would like them to do. It's very, uh, a very powerful uh, leaning or temptation or tendency within a pastor to see those weak in the faith or young in the faith to, to somehow um, bind the consciences of people who are weak because they're not going to know any better. I mean, they're not going to read all the books I've read. They're not going to really go search this out. I can tell you anything and people will follow. That's a tendency we have. We tend to despise. Now, the opposite of despising, of course, would be loving, charitable treatment of everybody. Just love everybody. Be charitable in your thinking. Assume the best about people. For whom does our Lord demand this loving, charitable treatment by forbidding us to despise, His disciples to despise? He says, see that you... Do not despise one of these little ones. Now, notice the individual focus. He says one. Just one. Do not despise just one. He doesn't make a reference to any particular sect or any particular denomination or a group with a particular theological leaning. He says do not despise one. That is one of these little ones. Do not despise even one single, humble, lowly-hearted, perhaps weak-minded Christian who is tethered by eternal covenant and Holy Spirit bond to Jesus, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't despise. So in summary, again, we have a repudiation of this attitude of... Arrogance. The Lord Jesus says in so many words, guard yourself and your heart and your mind against adopting an attitude, a mindset of superiority over any one of God's people. Don't do that. And He's telling His disciples, your tendency is to think you're better than them, and that shows because you were just arguing about who's better. Point number two. Then is the rationale for the prohibition he's just given a prohibition a repudiation do not act like this here we have the rationale at this point we might ask again why not why can we not despise another Christian why can't we think down on them if if I'm legitimately smarter why can't I think down upon them if I'm legitimately better in some form or fashion why not what's wrong with that and so here he gives the rationale notice that what follows in the balance of the verse, we could call it 10b, is given as a reason or a a rationale for the command. A rationale is a set of reasons or a logical basis for a course of action. And that's exactly what we have here. He begins with the word for. See that you do not despise one of these little ones for. In other words, the logical basis... (coughs) For the course of action that I'm commanding is as follows. Here's why you cannot despise. And as he's done many times before, just recently in in verse 3, he did it in the Sermon on the Mount, whenever Jesus wants to confront the wrong thinking of men with direct divine revelation... He prefaces what he's about to say here. He prefaces his rationale with a reference to himself as the authoritative voice. See, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks on behalf of the Godhead because he is himself God. As God, he has inerrant and infallible information. Therefore, he says, I tell you. I tell you. This is not... Rabbinical tradition. Jesus didn't learn this in the school of Hillel or the school of Shammai. Rabbi Benjamin Bar-Hushmai did not teach this to Jesus. He's God. He, He is speaking as God. So he says, I tell you, whatever you've heard, whatever you've thought, that is gone now because now God is speaking. For I tell you that in heaven... Their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So here's his rationale. He gives details about what's going on in the spiritual realm with regard to every single one of God's people. He first names a place that they had never been, but with which he was very familiar. Heaven, this is where he came from. Heaven here is a reference to the very existence or the throne room of God, the abode of I Am, where, where God the Father dwells in heaven. And then He names beings that they had never seen. In heaven, they're angels, the, the angels of God. Now... We have to consider the angels because the the weight of this rationale lies in the nature and in the purpose of angels. What are angels? What do they do and why is that important? The angels. The burning ones. The scripture refers to them as the the living creatures who ever live in the presence of the Father. The angels. In In Ezekiel the very beginning of the book of Ezekiel, the prophet, speaking of course in semi-apocalyptic prophetic language, describes some angels. And again, throughout Scripture, you'll see different descriptions. You, You put them all together to get a good, vivid picture. But in Ezekiel chapter 1, in verse 6, he describes the angels. He said, each of them had four faces and four wings. Now, the number four in Scripture is often a reference to the earth. You've probably heard the four corners of the earth, the four winds. It's usually a reference to the earth. And so when we read that they had four faces and four wings, it could possibly be a reference to their, the, the constant presence of angels all over the world, all the time. Not that any angel is omnipresent, but that there are enough of them to be everywhere, all the time, watching in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 9, he says, Their faces, they had four, did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. So it's almost as if they have a face looking every direction all the time. So they don't need to turn. They, they always move only straight forward and straight back. This could also be a reference, I think might be helpful here, to the fact that the angels of God are never in a position where they do not behold the glory of God. They never turn their back on God, ever. They're always looking at God no matter what they're doing. Ezekiel says, The living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. So in other words, with, with incomprehensible speed, the angels of God are darting to and fro all over the earth, carrying out the will of God. In naming the angels of heaven, Jesus also describes actions that the disciples could not comprehend. He says, these angels, their angels, the angels, again, that seemingly belong to or somehow tied intimately to the people of God, their angels always see the face of God the Father in heaven. Now, we know that God is a spirit. He does not have a body like men. And so when when our Lord speaks of God the Father as having a face or any time we read in scripture of God having a face or body parts we know that he's speaking anthropomorphically he's giving to God the characteristics of a human body to try to explain to us some quality that we can't comprehend and so the face of God most often points us to the direct attentive good pleasure and presence of the glory of God. It's it's focused at you, His face. The angels always are in the presence of His good and glorious, perfect attention. Now think about that. Consider the glory and the status of such creatures. We, We think about coming into the presence of God. We, we only have a right into the presence of God through the blood of Jesus. It's not our own. We, we have to have a mediator to come into His presence. When we think about the picture of Queen Esther going before the king, she was scared because not just anybody comes in before the king. You have to have been called. Here we have angels who are of a high enough glory and are sinless so that they can be in the presence of God Always, forever. That's that's what they do. They're always in his presence. I think, keep that in your mind. And now we ask the question what does the Bible say is the purpose of angels? In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, speaking of the angels, the author says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? That's us. We're the ones who are inheriting salvation. Speaking rhetorically here, he says, remember, he's comparing Jesus with angels. He's saying, are not angels just ministering spirits sent to serve the saints, the people of God? In other words, here's the picture. The gloriously burning angels of heaven who ever live in constant hovering preparation and earnest eagerness to carry out the bidding of I Am with pinpoint accuracy and lightning speed have been commissioned by God to be ministering spirits to us, to saints. They rank above us in glory, and yet they are employed for our service. They live for the sole purpose of worshiping God eternally, and yet they have been charged with the care of the little ones. We adopted sons and daughters of God. So what's Jesus saying with this, with this rationale? How does the nature and the character and the purpose of angels uphold and support a prohibition against despising one another? What well, seems to be this... Since God the Father places enough value on each saint that He would commission the angels of heaven to minister to us, then should we not count each other, treat each other with high regard? If every individual believer deserves or has received enough attention that the angels are sent to minister to us, then should we not owe one another respect? An honor? Or as Matthew Henry puts it, let not earth despise those whom heaven respects. You see, our tendency toward arrogance and that coupled with our inability to see what's happening in heaven with regard to the people of God and the angels of God, because of those two facts, we are prone to, to, to wonder towards an attitude of arrogance. That You know, the old adage, out of sight, out of mind. See, we can't see in heaven. We've never been there. And we would never, it would never enter into the mind of man. No no matter how highly we think of ourselves, we would never have imagined that the myriad army of angels of heaven would be commissioned to care for us unless Jesus had not said it right here. They're angels. Always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. They're angels. Again, somehow intimately connected to the people of God. And I was telling the men yesterday, I don't think this is... um, warrant to run off into the idea of the guardian angel type thing, which many have done. Um, But somehow, in some way, there are angels of heaven that are specifically commissioned for us. And we would never think that if He had not told us. And so we, now having that truth set before us, hopefully regularly remembering that truth in our minds we would settle in our minds. If this is how God thinks of my brothers and sisters, then surely I need to respect them and honor them and think of them highly. Now, the second table of God's moral law is summarized in Leviticus 19:18. Jesus repeats it in Matthew 19 and Matthew 22. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here in this passage, Jesus has given a prohibition Concerning our treatment of others. He's given us, in other words, the negative form. We are to love our neighbors. We are not to despise one another. So, I want to consider some specific positive prescriptions that are linked particularly, particularly to this proscription. In other words, Jesus says, here's what not to do. Don't despise. As a general heading, we ought to... Love our neighbor as ourselves. But how can we love our neighbors as ourselves specifically with regard to or trying to repair or trying to prevent attitudes of arrogance? If I'm trying to keep myself from despising any other Christian, then what could I do? Well, if the problem finds its root in the thoughts of your mind, do not think down, then correcting the problem must begin with correcting your thoughts. Correcting the way you think. First of yourself and then of others. So let's begin the first point of application. Think rightly of yourself. Think rightly of yourself. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3a, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment. So there is a way, there is a, a level, an extent to which, we, or, yeah, to which we ought to think of ourselves. There is an ought there. And Paul says we're commanded not to think more highly than that. Don't go beyond the ought. He also says we're to think with sober judgment. So that means when we think of ourselves, we should honestly examine the facts about ourselves. We should set aside all personal bias and receive the truth about ourselves. Think with sober judgment. Don't think higher. Think soberly. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 3, Paul says, If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So... Again, don't think more highly than you ought to think. And if you do, you're only deceiving yourself. Other people are not deceived by what you think of yourself. And God most certainly is not deceived by how you think of yourself. Your arrogance only deceives you. In your mind, you're thinking more highly than you ought to think. Everybody else has probably got you pretty well pegged. You're deceiving yourself. So don't think more highly. If you do, you're just deceiving yourself. So we might ask, well, how then should we think of ourselves? Well, Romans 12, 16c says, Never be wise in your own sight. So as you consider yourself, when you think of yourself, do not think of yourself as wise. Never. Again, even if you are wise... That's up for other people to discover. That's up for God to reveal, not for you to sit and think yourself to be wise. In your own mind, when you or in your own sight, as he says here, in your own thinking, you should think of yourself as always in need of more wisdom, always with potential to growth. You have not arrived, as it were. You're not there. In your thinking, you're not there. Always more to be had, always more growth to pursue. As a matter of fact, God has clearly revealed in His Word the condition of men. These things are not new for us, but with regard to our inherent goodness, God says none is righteous. No, not one. So if you thought you were good, God says you're not. With regard to our wisdom and our understanding, God says no one understands. With regard to our moral pursuits, He says, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. With regard to our speech, God says, your throat's an open grave. The venom of asps is under your tongue. Your mouth is full of curses and bitterness. You use your tongue to deceive. With regard to the general direction of our lives, again, the feet that we learned about last week, God says, Your feet are swift to shed blood, and your paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace you've not known. See, when we begin to think highly of ourselves, we we come with sober judgment to the Scriptures. If we will receive it, we are immediately reduced. With regard to our respect and reverence for God, Scripture's clear there is no fear of God before their eyes. You don't have it. Now, these truths should influence and guide the way you think of yourself. And there are no caveats. There are no exception clauses. There's not a footnote where you go to the bottom and you see a list of the upright. This is all people. Now, we might read that and say, well, wait a second, wait a second. I'm a Christian. I'm born again. I'm a new creature. Well, even with regard to the faith, we're all born again into this great salvation. We enter as infants. We come in need of milk. We come in need of care and protection and nourishment. And even as we mature in the Christian life, we live as sheep in constant need of guidance and care and protection and help. Even to the wise and the learned or the aged and the mature, the Apostle Paul's words are helpful in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, when he says, Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then or if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive? In other words, okay, so you're mature, you're learning, you're growing. You've you've attained some sort of status of understanding. Why should we think of you any different? Whatever you got, it was given. You didn't didn't get it yourself. It was a gift. So don't think about yourself. Don't brag about yourself like you did something to get it. It's been given, freely given. So we start there. Start with right thinking about ourselves. When we begin to think of ourselves rightly, that will influence our thinking of others. So that leads to the second point of application. Think rightly of others. Now I'll give only one proof text here. Philippians 2 and verse 3b Paul says in humility count others more significant than yourselves we've seen this before notice Paul he's exhorting to them to exhorting them to act out of a particular attitude in humility or adopting the disposition of humility count others more significant than yourself so Having adopted that disposition of humility, which hopefully will come about as we study the Scriptures about ourselves, we reduce ourselves in our own eyes, we think rightly of ourselves in our own minds, we stop thinking that we are wise, we affirm the clear revelation of God that all people of the race of Adam are equally sinful and fallen and helpless. In humility, having gotten to that point, count... That is, reckon, consider, be of the opinion that others are more significant than yourself. Now, this is interesting. Pay attention here. We adopt a posture of humility. We study the Word of God. We see Romans 3, that, that, that piling on of our, our wickedness. We realize all men, everybody, sinfully or equally sinful and helpless, apart from Christ, We think of ourselves that way. Now, when we begin to think of others, do we still think, well, they're all equal? Do we still keep thinking that all people are the same? No. We don't. Paul clearly states that when we turn from ourselves to others, we are to think of them as more significant than ourselves. We count them as better. We count them as more valuable. As superior. Are they actually superior? No. But he's addressing the way we think. In humility, count, reckon others as more significant. When you think of others, even though you know, you know the grounds level at the cross. We know that. We're all equal. But when you think of them, you are to count them as more significant than yourself. So think rightly of yourself. Think rightly of others which does not mean equal with you but as more significant and then thirdly prioritize the edification of others if we're commanded to count others as more significant more important as better than us of of, of more value we think of them that way then that means they're going to become a priority to us rather than ourselves And if others are now our priority, then their interests and their needs and their satisfaction and their benefit now becomes the prioritized end to which we labor. We're not working for ourselves anymore. We're working to prioritize others. So to to just unpack what that might look like, I have multiple injunctions from the New Testament. Just little short, quick statements that... The Apostle Paul gives in various places on how we could, how we should prioritize the edification of others. In Romans 12, 10b, he says, Outdo one another in showing honor. So we are to surpass each other in honor shown. And when I read this and, and, and say this, I immediately begin to think nobody's going to get to eat lunch today because everybody's going to be so humble. They're going to outdo one another, and we're all just going to stand around seeing who the, the, the arrogant jerk is who's going to go first. That's not what this means. When you are honored, you try to eclipse that honor shown to you by showing it to others with the honor that you show. You, you try to outdo, it's a competition, it's a contest. Romans 12, 16b, Paul says, associate with the lowly. Now this is of great benefit, I think, when we consider the little ones, that that picture of the humble, childlike saint. When we think of those weak in faith from Romans 14, associate with the lowly, the the humble, the weak, the, the immature, the young. Do not segregate into classes. There's no, there's no room in the church for rich versus poor or smart versus ignorant or new beginners versus old saints. When you read the Scriptures, the, the pattern of discipleship in the body is everybody's together and the old people are constantly discipling the young people and, and the, the various age groups are always together in growth. We always, all of us should always seek to associate with those who we would consider Lowly, whether physically, uh, in in age, younger, we we associate with every other believer. That's how we grow and mature. Romans 14, 19, Paul says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Again, pursue. Go after peace. Make peace your pursuit. Don't sit still and quiet and think, well, I'm just going to try to keep the peace by doing nothing. No, you go after peace. You pursue what makes for peace. Labor toward the upbuilding of all. Don't just assume everybody else is getting it. Work to make sure everyone is being upbuilt, a mutual upbuilding. Romans 15, 1 and 2. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. I mean, he says it clearly. It could not be more clear. Do not please yourself. Please your neighbors. Strive for the good of others. If you are a mature believer, if you think you have arrived... You are under obligation to be patient and slow in your dealings with those who are weak in the faith. You may not run ahead. You must walk slowly. We're a flock. We we tarry with one another. We are under obligation to be patient. Philippians 2, 4b, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Galatians 6, 2, Bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6, 10, B, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That is especially the church. The faith family takes priority over the world and even blood family especially where Christ is not named or honored. Especially lost family. The church takes priority Jesus never said I've not come to bring peace but a sword and I'm going to divide churches it's not what he said he said I will divide families mothers and daughters mother-in-law daughter-in-law father and son I will split families but I will join the church in Holy Spirit bond in 1 Corinthians 12 25b the, the, the theme of this chapter remember is Paul using the physical body to explain the unity and the necessity of every part of the body of Christ and he says that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another so a church body is to act like a physical body and a physical body when you stumble and you're about to fall you're going down your face is gonna hit your torso is gonna hit your knees gonna hit whatever your hands immediately run out to catch yourself, it's, it's instinct. We want to catch ourselves. If we're about to stumble, we, we want to protect ourselves. That's how the church body should work. When we see a member about to be harmed or hurt or, or whatever, it's instinct that we run to the protection. We have mutual care and protection of one another. He says the same care for one another. The, all of the parts of the body are working together for the safety and care of the whole body. So, in other words, when we talk about prioritizing the edification of others, we get our minds corrected about ourselves, and then we correct our thinking about others. We consider them as more significant. Once we've done all that, then we act upon what we know. Remember, the the overarching command of God is, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when it comes to ourselves, we don't simply sit and think well, I would like to eat this, or I would like to do this, or, or I'm hot, I'm going to turn the air uh, up, or I'm going to put a jacket on. We don't just think about it. No, we act. We do it for ourselves. And so when it comes to loving our neighbor as ourselves, we do the same thing. When We think it, and then we act to the edification of the body. So in order to fulfill the command of Christ, we must not only think properly of ourselves and others, but must work out the prioritization of others through deeds. Do not despise those whom heaven respects, but rather seek their honor and growth. Now, think of that. Is that not completely countercultural? We think about the way the church works. Sure, parents will take care of their children. We understand that in our culture. But even, even in that, in ourselves, we can see the selfishness. we got to, I need a, I need a break. I want to put the kids in front of a screen for a while so I can have some alone time. You know, we, we, there's a selfishness even in that, that most intimate care. In our culture, it's, it's perfectly normal to calculate your offspring based on convenience. We love our children as long as it's convenient. We're selfish even in that. Or, or children may even care for their elderly parents in their old age. But even in that, think about how much our culture loves the nursing homes and elderly communities. Why is that? It's because caring for somebody else is inconvenient. It's hard. And of course... I would exclude special medical attention that can't be uh, given by normal people, but even in that care, we're selfish. In our culture, a friend is a good friend if he will give you the shirt off your back, but that doesn't happen with somebody you met Yesterday. Usually, friendships like that have to be forged over years of companionship. You develop a trust between one another. And apart from that mutual trust and care, those deep friendships rarely exist. That's how our culture responds or how our culture thinks. In parents with children, children to parents, friends, even when we think we're really swooping in to care and to love and to be tender and nurture. There's selfishness in that. But the clarion call to the church of Jesus Christ is that the older and more mature are to act parentally to those who are younger. And those who are uh, younger are to act in a filial manner to the older and the more mature. And as a body, we are to treat one another like brothers and sisters. And that is in a body of people from various backgrounds, all different ages, all different interests, most of us, we've only known each other several years, if not a few months or weeks. And Jesus says, I want you to be closer, take care of one another more intimately and with less selfishness than even a physical family. So how could we do that? How, how, how could He expect that to happen within the church body? Well, the answer is that we are filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, who exemplified this very behavior to us when we were His enemies. Romans 5 says, God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. You see how we're described there. Sinners. We know what sin is. We're we're transgressors. We're rebels. We're trespassers. We are offenders. Enemies of God. Opposing God. The battle lines are drawn. We situate ourselves on the side of opposition toward God. And the Lord of glory dies to bring us to His side. That's our, not only our example, but His Spirit fills us. Now think of the words of the Apostle Paul in, in passages that we pulled from a moment ago. We're exhorted to brotherly love and service. But if we put all this together in Philippians 2, he says, after exhorting to humility and counting others more significant, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Or Romans 15, 2 and 3. We read verses 1 and 2. Read verses 2 and 3. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For, here's the reason, Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Ephesians 5, 2, Paul says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So this is our king. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He did not please himself. He gave himself up for us. His spirit dwells in us. His example is our example. You see, if there were ever a man who had the right to despise other men, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God-man. He may think down on everything, but he willfully, voluntarily was... Despised and rejected by men. If there were ever a man who could consider himself more, high, high, more highly than he considered others, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't imagine that there would be an extent or a, a, a topping off of the, the high thoughts of himself. He couldn't think high enough. And yet, he humbled himself and took the form of a servant in eternity Christ looked upon us and saw us as afflicted by sin, smitten by God or, or prepared for God's wrath, ready to be smitten by God and yet when we read the Scriptures and we see Him in His humility, Isaiah 53, from our perspective, we considered Him smitten by God and afflicted. You see, all of that for our transgressions, our iniquities, His enemies, sinners, our griefs given to him, our sorrows given to him, the chastisement that brought us peace is laid upon him. You see, church, if we would get a glimpse of that servant, we would never walk in pride again. We, we would hang our heads low in shame if we could see that having seen what my sin earned. We, we would fain look each other in the eye out of embarrassment if we could have just seen the result of our sins, if we could have just seen Him, just for a second, if we could see Him hanging on the cross, we would never be arrogant again, but we can't. We can't see that physically. But we have the testimony of Scripture and the Holy Spirit, and so we, we ask, if He would do that for me, if He would do that for you, then should we not consider ourselves and consider each other as more significant than ourselves? Should we we not try, at least try really hard, to not despise, to not think down on one another? Of course we should. Do not despise. Adopt the mind of Christ. Now as we come to the Lord's table, we do get to see a small picture of Golgotha. We see, see the bread of life broken and then distributed sufficiently for all of God's people. We see His, the lifeblood of the king given as a ransom for many in the cup. So as the elements are distributed, this is a picture. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. Not just to the world. They can't see us. We're proclaiming His death to each other. We're saying, look at what we're doing. This is what binds us here. Look, we're proclaiming His death. So as the elements are distributed, Examine yourselves, as Paul says. Make sure you eat in a worthy manner. That that means you look in your heart and you realize my worthiness to this table is found only in Christ alone.